Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care and brought to you by the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. My name's Charlie Andrews, your host for this series, and I'm a GP with an extended role based in Midsummer Norton near Bath. This is an educational podcast designed to bring you up-to-date, reliable advice from experts in various fields of gastroenterology should not replace your clinical judgment or use of clinical guidelines. In this episode, I'm speaking to Dr. James Turville, who is a consultant gastroenterologist at York Teaching Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. James was instrumental in the development of the Yorkshire and Humber Faecal Calprotectin pathway, which has informed the NICE guidelines on the use of faecal calprotectin in primary care, which is called NICE Diagnostic Guideline 11, or NICE DG11. Many of you will be familiar with the pathway, and if you're not, there is a link to it in the blurb for this episode, and I really would encourage you to look at this either before or during this episode, as it will really enhance your learning around this topic. Fecal calprotectin is a hugely valuable tool in our armory when assessing patients with gastrointestinal symptoms. It's extremely common for us to see patients with uh, a disparate uh, collection of symptoms such as abdominal pain, diarrhea, and having tests such as faecal calprotectin to help us differentiate those who may have inflammatory bowel disease from those who may have a functional condition such as irritable bowel syndrome is hugely valuable. It's valuable not only in allowing us to provide a positive diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome in those with a very low faecal calprotectin level. It's also extremely helpful to ensure that those with a high faecal calprotectin result who are more likely to have inflammatory bowel disease receive the diagnostic test and therefore the treatment that they require in a timely manner. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to James about what faecal calprotectin is, when we should be using it, and very importantly, how we should be interpreting the result. So we'll go through that um, that faecal calprotectin pathway that I mentioned earlier. And as I said, if you have that in front of you at the time that we discuss it, that really will help enhance your learning. So we'll talk about all of these areas. We'll also cover uh, trickier topics such as what medications or other conditions can cause the faecal calprotectin result to be elevated. And we'll also look at the link between faecal calprotectin and fit. So two very commonly and very usefully used tests in primary care, how they interact with each other and how we should be using each appropriately. In just a moment, you'll hear that conversation that I had with uh, James. But just before I do that, I want to say firstly, thank you very much for choosing to spend your time listening to this podcast. I hugely value uh, your comments, your reviews, and if you enjoy this episode and want to listen to more, please click subscribe and then you'll get a notification every time we bring out another episode, which we aim to do every month. Thank you very much. So I'm joined by James Turville today. Thank you so much for joining me today, James. Not, not at all. It's a, a pleasure. Thank you for, for inviting me. Thanks very much. Well, let's get straight into it. What is faecal calprotectin? So uh, calprotectin is a, a protein contained within the, the cytoplasm of white cells, largely neutrophils, 
and it's a calcium binding protein. And this means that when white cells degranulate in a response to infection, inflammation, calprotectin is released. And the good thing about calprotectin is it's a relatively stable protein. It's not digested in the gut. So normally the gut mucosa doesn't have white cells, neutrophils within it. And so there's very little degranulation and therefore very little release of calprotectin into the gut lumen for it to be detected in the in the stool. But if there is any process that drives white cells into the gut mucosa, the digestive tract mucosa, that is from stomach or esophagus all the way down, then those white cells will degranulate, release calprotectin into the gut lumen. It will be incorporated into the stool. It doesn't degrade rapidly like blood does. And so it is it's a good test for a laboratory then to assay. And in that sense, it's a bit like the gut linings CRP, but it is both as perfect and as imperfect as CRP is. Any inflammation along the full extent of the gut can put the calprotectin up. This is both a strength and a weakness of it. I, I find it helpful thinking of it a bit as the CRP of the gut. And with that in mind, thinking about the, as you said, the imperfection of the test, but actually it's still very good if you're suspicious of an inflammatory process. On that note, when should we use it in primary care? In broad terms, there are two settings in which to use calprotectin. Unfortunately, since COVID, there has become a, a third setting, which rather complicates matters. Calprotectin should be primarily used to, to, to support your assessment of a patient, your risk assessment of a patient who presents with symptoms that might be inflammatory bowel disease or might be an irritable bowel syndrome. And you see a lot of these patients, bowel digestive symptoms, very commonplace in primary care. You know that better than me. And untangling that patient is what you use the calprotectin for. If we ex extend this a little, the pathway that we developed is all about trying to support an individual general practitioner in a, a risk assessment and a st staged approach to the care of someone they're seeing it, who has symptoms that are problematic and where there is a, a differential conundrum. But it is only a, a risk assessment tool. It's giving you a steer in the same way that a D-dimer CRP gives you a steer if you see a patient. If you know what the diagnosis is, you don't use a screening test. I would like to think that our pathway supports general practitioners who, who have a range of experiences. They bring a range of expertise to the patient they assess. And if the, the GP is very confident of a diagnosis, well, that's the diagnosis. You don't need to add in a, a screening test, a risk assessment test. But if, you're, if there's any uncertainty I think that's the word, then the faecal calprotectin is extremely helpful. And it will be better than your clinical judgment, if I, respectfully, in giving you that steer. So it's diagnostic uncertainty in the setting of 
perhaps IBS or perhaps IBD. If you're certain it's IBD, you don't need to do, you, you've made your decision, you don't need fecal calprotectin. And of course, uh, sometimes you need to, you need to admit patients, patients are so hot, so ill with um, inflammatory bowel disease that they need to be, that care needs to be initiated immediately. And the last thing you want to be doing is waiting a fortnight for stool tests. And at the other end of the spectrum, if you're certain that this patient has a, a, a functional dis, d, d, disorder, then not. But it's that uncertainty in that setting. When you're in the setting of query IBS, query IBD, this is a new patient and you're thinking newly about a diagnosis, then we, we think you should stop at 60. So we do not use fecal calprotectin beyond 60. Above 60, the differential there is not IBS versus IBD, it's IBS versus cancer. And on top of that, the sensitivity and specificity falls away for fecal calprotectin. So we found, we felt the evidence base pointed towards that not being a good test. The sorts of scenarios where it can be useful, where you, you, you will have a, a young person with bowel symptoms, but then they get mouth ulcers, or then they get back pain, or then they found to be iron deficient, or they discovered that their aunt had Crohn's disease. And you, you've suddenly got a number of factors in the assessment of the patient that would steer you from an irritable bowel, for example, to inflammatory bowel disease. And whilst all of those pieces of information in the history are important in bringing together, the calprotectin will trump those so a family history and a normal calp, calprotectin, the calprotectin is telling the truth. Bowel symptoms and iron deficiency or bowel symptoms and you're overweight and your CRP is up at eight or nine or 10, that sort of, and the calprotectin is normal, the calprotectin is telling the, 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 the truth. So that's where I think it particularly helps give it the steer. Then um, fecal calprotectin is extremely helpful in the monitoring of patients in whom a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease is established and you're, you are wanting to know, uh, usually in a secondary care se setting, have we brought this patient into remission or not? And you can use the calprotectin to inform that risk assessment rather than colonoscope the patient or MR them. Usually the calprotectin is sufficient. And in primary care, you may have a patient who is known to have inflammatory bowel disease and then presents with new symptoms or a development of symptoms. And it may be, un it may be difficult to untangle, is this the inflammatory bowel disease or is this something else, just an irritable bowel on top of it? And a calprotection will give you a, a helpful steer in that setting. And indeed, it will give the secondary care clinician a great deal of help if you've done the fecal calprotectin beforehand in that assessment of them. When you're monitoring someone with known inflammatory bowel disease, there should be no age limit to the use of fecal calprotectin. So we take it from 16 to any age.
The, th the third um, indication now for doing a fecal cow protection, I'm afraid, is as an entree for colonoscopy. So unfortunately, secondary care services are now continuing to struggle with capacity after COVID. And most units are using biomarkers, fecal biomarkers, to inform their risk assessment of the urgency by which they list patients for a procedure. So that's been a, a, effectively a, a, a corruption of calprotectin. And instead of primary care using it, just in their local assessment of a newly presenting patient, they're having to do the calprotectin to inform the way an onward colonoscopy is prioritized. That's a subtle but important difference, and it may mean that you end up requesting calprotectin when you might not, you, you know that there's an indication for a colonoscopy, and you might not think there's any point in doing the calprotectin, the decision is made, and yet you're having to do it. Is that helpful or clear? That's, that's really helpful. No, I think that that's a really clear way of looking at it, and those three different areas really helpful it's also really helpful to clarify when to use it in terms of ages actually as well so thanks that was that was great that's a really good overview i'm aware that certain conditions and medications can impact the fecal calprotectin result aside from inflammatory bowel disease do you think you could talk about some of the conditions that we need to be aware of that might alter the result and some of the drugs and medications that can do the same a, a range of medicines, anything that causes inflammation and migration of neutrophils into the gut mucosa will put up the, the, the fecal calprotectin. There's interest in PPIs. An excellent colleague of mine in the, the southeast uh, published some data on PPIs a few years ago, and I think this has caused some confusion. What he found was that people who were symptomatic with inflammatory foregut disease and so taking PPIs had an elevated fecal calprotectin. And this, this makes sense. If you've got a peptic ulcer, it may well raise your fecal calprotectin. But it wasn't the PPI per se putting up uh, the, the, the fecal calprotectin. It was the, the use of that because of foregut inflammatory processes that were driving neutrophils into the gut mucosa. Now, there is separately an association between microscopic colitis and PPIs, you'll know, that gives terrible torrential diarrhea. And um, 60 or 70% of those patients will have a raised fecal calprotectin. So that may also have skewed that historic data. But from my point of view, in the way our pathway is applied, the PPI has no bearing on anything. And I, I would, it's just, it's another hurdle for you and the patient, you and primary care and the patient have to overcome before uh, an assessment. So I would not worry about that at all. Non-steroidals, in our initial evaluation, we asked for non-steroidals to be omitted before requesting fecal calprotectin. And then in our evaluation of that, we found it made no difference in clinical practice. And so subsequently, we removed um, ex excluding non-steroidal from our pathway. 
clearly some patients will have an intense inflammatory response because they're taking NSAIDs, but most won't. And for most, it makes no difference to the way the pathway is applied and its sensitivity and specificity. And this is this aligns with our experience in clinical practice. Most people can take um, some ibuprofen or naproxen and it causes no upset. But some people get diarrhea with it. Some people get inflammatory processes of the gut and that will cause the, the calprotectin to, to raise. So if in your assessment of the patient, you wonder whether the calprotectin is falsely raised if it has come back raised, then you can um, agree to omit the, the the therapy, and then see again. But I wouldn't. But it doesn't need to be a block to your initial assessment of the patient. I would say mm, that's really helpful. And actually, you know, that's I find that that's really useful to hear. And there's a lot more nuance to it than simply the medications elevating or impacting on the results. So that's really good to clear up. And what about the conditions you mentioned? There was some. Other conditions that can be picked up through fecal calprotectin, other inflammatory causes in the bowel. Thank you. Yes, the biggest one, of course, is infection. And so what I think we see quite often is a patient who has probably had an irritable bowel syndrome for some time, and it may or may not have been upsetting them, but they've not seen their general practitioner about it and then they get about a food poisoning something goes wrong and they get some really quite intrusive diarrhea and that cause that prompts them to go and see you and you'll do a fecal calprotectin then and it can be sky high it can be in the thousands and then you're suddenly in this the setting of an urgent referral a colonoscopy which is costly not risk-free unpleasant so the first ask when you're thinking about a fecal calprotectin in the context of a new presenting patient is what are your suspicions? What do you clinically think? And are you certain or uncertain? If there's so it's suspicion and uncertainty. And then the next thing really is excluding infection, ex excluding gut infection. So C. diff, if they've been on antibiotics, and just a, a stool microscopy, because it, it's very it's really not good medicine to be colonoscoping some because they've got compilobacter uh, and and we we do see that and that takes us to the necessity of repeating the calprotectin so a, a sustained elevated fecal calprotectin is a very sensitive test for inflammatory disease of the of the bowel that is ulcerative colitis uh, crohn's a disease, microscopic colitis, diverticulitis, um, but um, an infection will cause a non-sustained, a transient elevation to the same order. Mm. I've definitely been in that situation where I've done the fecal calprotectin and it's been sky high and you repeat it and it's normal and actually it looks like it was probably infection, but it does lead to some uncertainty and a bit of worry on both sides. So um, yeah, I think it is. It's a really important point to pick up. And so, usually, forgive me. So, usually, a a normal fecal calprotectin tends to trump a raised one. You should that should be your your general position. A, a, a calprotectin, fecal calprotectin, doesn't always tell the truth, but it rarely lies. So, the normal result, if you get one, is usually the truth. 
that's a good that's a good good thought there actually i like that a lot i've always been a big fan of your of the pathway in york the really useful pathway for helping us to know what to do with different fecal calprotectin levels and i would love to go through that in more detail now as in diagnostic use of fecal calprotectin what should we do at different thresholds thank you and i i'm delighted that you've found it useful the purpose of the pathway was primarily to support you as primary care clinicians in in best managing best advising patient who presents to you and i was keen that it would work with you rather than make you jump through hoops so that i i hope that that's what it does that it's that it goes with the way you'd you would practice normally so that is why um there are very few barriers that's why we have withdrawn the non-steroidal bit you don't need to omit taking PPIs. Of course, you need to th to think respectfully and consider options, but you use it when there is diagnostic uncertainty, IBS versus IBD. You don't suspect cancer. If you if you think this is cancer, then you we now have a different pathway. But we see very very little cancer under the age of. 50 in truth colorectal cancer certainly under the age of 45 we do get it and our, and the pathway will protect against that rarity but it's very uncommon and baseline investigations uh, need to have been done a, a celiac screen a calcium perhaps full blood count thyroid functions the sort of things that you would normally do and stool culture we apply the pathway um, from the age of 16 to 60, and it shouldn't be used above. And younger than 16, the, the gut is different, levels of inflammation in the base state are different, and you need, most pediatricians would just want to see a patient rather. Than, so we, we don't use, the we don't use the calprotectin under 16. So um, you uh, request a fecal calprotectin and our uh, cutoff is 100. So if the fecal calprotectin is less than 100, that is extremely reassuring. And there are two pieces of information you can take from that. Firstly, this is either an irritable bowel syndrome or secondly, this is not a gut-related symptom. So this is ovarian or renal. The pathway directs you to think about those options. If you feel the symptoms are IBS in nature, then you're empowered. You, the, the patient understands that the risk of anything else is very low. You're empowered to treat the patient proactively with nice approved therapies. Reassurance, fluids, dietary modifications, soluble fiber, laxatives, antispasmodics. Uh, and, and what we find, certainly here in York, is that that closes down most episodes. So that's all that's needed, a little bit of time, expectation, the, the, the confidence of having that time, 
and most patients close. If the patient remains symptomatic, then you have two options. If the patient is young and the fecal calprotectin was very low, we say less than 50 and less than 50, that is younger than 50, and the fecal, then the risk of anything remains very low. And we, we encourage GPs to offer a second line of treatment. So that may be amitriptyline or an SSRI to treat their irritable bowel. By contrast, if the calprotectin is raised above 50 or, or they're a little older, uh, you refer in. The patient is still symptomatic. You've, you've given local treatment, but it's not worked. So the patient needs a secondary care assessment. And indeed, if in the younger people, the second line treatment haven't worked, what you've identified is a likely a, a difficult IBS patient or something else that clearly needs a secondary care opinion. So you refer in routinely. And that's what I mean about it being safety netted. No one, all that you've done is identify a low risk population, treated them symptomatically, allowed uh, the majority to settle. And that smaller group that remains symptomatic, you've then got a good reason for referring them into secondary care because they're the more difficult group. So that's that's the less than 100 pathway. Uh, if the fecal calprotectin is over 100, uh, you, re you repeat it. We found that about um, half of uh, patients repeat calprotectin came in under 100, that is normalized, and they then behave as that's the same as a, a, a primary um, uh, le less than 100. Um, and that means that you've, you're left with about 15% of patients have with a persistently raised fecal calprotectin. 85% will, will have less. In our initial evaluation, those who had a high fecal calprotectin, that is over 250, we didn't repeat them. Uh, but we've, we found um, that they had as much a chance of normalizing as the intermediate group, that is 100 to 250. So all who have a elevated test have a calprotectin repeated if we're to maintain a high positive predictive value of around 40%, maybe 45%, and spare um, colonoscopies uh, and more important, spare unnecessarily referring people who then have to have a colonoscopy. Now, the timing of the second fecal calprotectin, there's a lot of argument and debate about that. I, I leave, I think I, that should be for you to decide as, as a, a clinician. And in our evaluation, it was normally about 21 days. But uh, that's probably just around the logistics of getting the stool test and back and and the result and so forth. If you're very worried about the patient, then you get the repeat calprotectin sooner. If you're, um, and of course, if you're certain of the diagnosis, you just refer anyway. You don't. But um, clearly, the longer you leave it and it remains elevated, the more likely it is to be a true elevation. But patients are suffering in the meantime, so you have to make your own judgment. Now, if the calprotectin comes in sustained 
if the repeat calprotectin is greater than 250, we think the risk of inflammatory bowel disease or an inflammatory state is near to 50%. And what we do is ask you to send for an urgent referral to gastroenterology. And we normally offer a straight-to-test colonoscopy um, as the first test but these patients need to be referred urgently delayed these are most patients this is the group that will have inflammatory bowel disease and a delay in diagnosis does harm then you've got this other cohort in the intermediate range of 100 to 250 and this group of patients the yield for organic disease is only about 12 percent 10 to 15 percent and so what we ask is that you refer routinely to gastroenterology. And these patients need a bit of thinking about rather than straight to the colonoscopy. Um, sometimes the test needs to be repeated. Sometimes you need to think about non-steroidals. Um, uh, but in and amongst that group, you will get some Crohn's disease presenting early with just a little bit of small bowel inflammation. And so we do investigate these patients um, but they require, I think, generally a different uh, urgency and that the yield is lower. So, so we've got these three groups, low risk, intermediate and high risk. And the cutoffs are, are evidence-based, but they're not perfect. But they do, because of the distribution of patients, they do give the best steer, I think, for the greatest proportion of patients and therefore the best net uh, benefit mm. and in terms of fecal calprotectin and fit testing we're doing a lot more fit testing at the moment where do these two fit together is there any evidence that it can be used to detect bowel cancer um, can you clear up some of that for us in, in broad terms at the moment we don't know how how to uh, dovetail how, how to align fecal calprotectin and fit and there is some urgency in doing so we um, looked at the sensitivity and specificity of fecal calprotectin in a, and published a few years ago and fecal calprotectin had a negative predictive value of 98.6 percent and a, and a positive predictive value of 8.7 i've just got the data up um now that's that's not bad, but it's not as good as fit. Fit has a negative predictive value of ninety nine point six percent and a PPV of about fifteen to eighteen percent. So fit is the right test for cancer. the The difficulty is that if you apply fit in a population where the prevalence of cancer is very low, you're going to get you're, you're going to retain a high sensitivity but you're going to lose specificity or more particularly positive predictive value and we're seeing the positive predictive value in of fit in younger patients falling to less than five percent and if you do a fit in a young patient and it's positive you're you're too weighting the patient and this is what's happening at the moment. And the yield is, is, is very low. And you're then distorting colonoscopy capacity. 
because um, older people with the same fit value will have a much greater chance of colorectal cancer. And we all know that the waiting lists for two-week wait colonoscopies aren't being being met. So, um, of course, if you have a positive fecal cow protection, you need to be referred. But the fact that half of those referred are referred to a an outpatient setting and the others aren't in a two-week wait pathway, they're in an urgent pathway, but not a two-week wait pathway, means that resource in secondary care can be used a good deal better. But we have um, com just completed a study uh, trying to identify um, the relative sensitivities and specificities of fit and fecal carpetectin in a low-risk population. It's with our statistician at the moment, so I, 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 we don't know it yet. But in, in broad terms, it comes back to you as clinicians. These are two uh, imperfect risk assessment tools. If you suspect cancer, use FIT. But if you think this is more likely to be IBS or and IBD is my concern, use fecal calprotectin. And uh, the truth is, I, I think uh, under the age of 45, we were saying earlier, you have to be clear that there's a good reason for using FIT at the moment, I would say. So stick with your clinical assessment. You'll lose nothing from the fecal cow protection because it's a safety-netted pathway and it gives direction. The FIT at the moment is just a ticket for referral. And if if you suspect cancer, use FIT. But mm -hmm. if you don't suspect cancer, don't, don't use it. And, and inflammatory bowel disease is much, much more common than cancer in younger people. That's really helpful, thanks. We are coming to the end now. And so this is your opportunity to deliver a few key messages to our GP audience. So do you have any key messages you'd like our GPs to take away from our discussion today? Thank you. Yes, faecal biomarkers are imperfect risk assessment tools. They support your own judgment when there is clinical uncertainty and apply fecal calprotectin in a pathway so that the patient, you have a contract with the patient, which is the pathway. So if the patient keeps coming back, you've got a strategy for either reassuring them and treating them or referring them on. Everyone wins. The patients who are anxious, uh, but low risk and easily, and can be talked through and treated um, are, can stay in primary care. Those that are difficult, challenging, problematic, occult disease, they present themselves and they need to be seen in secondary care. It's important to apply fecal cap protection within the pathway. The cutoffs are important. Repeat testing is important, but don't make it difficult for yourself. Lastly, I should say they, the pathway is available within EMIS and System 1, it, so it is embedded uh, so it should be easy for you to navigate your way through. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me, James. Well, that was a fascinating episode. James is just a fount of knowledge about this topic, and it's great to hear his insights and thoughts around faecal calprotectin, and what a clear description of the pathway that we talked about earlier. My take-homes from this episode. So firstly, faecal calprotectin 
is like the CRP of the gut. It's good at identifying inflammation, but it needs to be interpreted in the context of the patient in front of you and their symptomatology. Secondly, the age range for diagnostic use of faecal calprotectin is 16 to 60 years. Over 60, colorectal cancer becomes more common and an alternative test such as FIT may well be appropriate. Thirdly, medications such as PPIs and NSAIDs may well have less impact on the faecal calprotectin result than I had originally thought. This will make it easier for me to assess my patients at that first consult when I'm considering using faecal calprotectin, as stopping PPIs, for example, can be a bit of a challenge, as we all know, as some patients are very reluctant to do so. My fourth take home, repeating the calprotectin result is important as some conditions such as GI infections can cause a transient rise in calprotectin. Persistent rise in faecal calprotectin is much more likely in inflammatory bowel disease. And finally, using the faecal calprotectin pathway in patients with GI symptoms, which could be due to either functional bowel disease or inflammatory bowel disease, is an evidence-based safe approach which will allow us to get the right patients, the right care at the right time. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Ingest. I hope that you found this episode insightful, interesting, uh, and that it has enhanced your learning around this area. Please do join us next time for our upcoming episode of Ingest next month. 